I'm Ellen, and you're listening to The Curvy Pod. My mission is to share conversations with entrepreneurial-spirited women and discuss how they break through barriers to live above the curve and create meaning in their life. This is Caitlin here in Tallahassee, Florida, with our guest today, Lisa Garner, and Ellen is with us Skyping in from New York City. I'm really excited to introduce you to Lisa. She is a psychology professor at Tallahassee Community College. She is also a graduate of the University of Florida, as am I, Go Gators, where she received her BS, MS, and PhD in developmental psychology and conducted research on cognitive development in infants and children. As a community college graduate herself, she appreciates the critical role strong female mentors play in young women's lives. She owes her success in large part to the excellent teacher she has had and firmly believes that the potential to forward even a fraction of that inspiration onto her students is what motivates her to strive for excellence. All right, so let's jump right on in. I gave the highlight reel, but could you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Lisa? Yeah, okay, so um, so I'm a PhD psychologist and um, I'm a psych professor at our local community college, which I've been doing for about the last 16 years. Before that, I did about a decade stint uh, running a research lab at UF. Um, but I'm a, I'm a developmental psychologist, so all things children, babies, changes in the lifespan, all that good stuff. That's, that's what I do. That's awesome. As a child, my um, mother would take me to the psychologist pretty often. <laughs> <laughs> I wish my mother had. Yeah, I don't think we had that resource available. I probably could have used it. <laughs> yeah, well, my mom worked at uh, Children's Hospital in Boston, and ah. so there was always access to a variety of doctors, and she would make me go see this guy that wore sneakers, and we called him Sneaker Man. <laughs> Just as a curious question that's not related to the five questions that we have, how do you stay motivated to keep practicing and doing developmental psychology? Yeah, so it is, it is really a challenge. Um, I'm primarily an instructor, so I don't do research anymore, which makes it a little bit challenging because I teach the same courses every semester, and I've been doing that for 16 years, three semesters a year. It can get a little bit redundant, you know? Um, I start to bore myself if my lectures are the same. So honestly, it's somewhat coming from a selfish place, but I figure if I'm bored with this, my students are probably bored with this. And so, yeah, I'm always reading. I'm incorporating new media, anything to keep it fresh. And, you know, psychology is a science too and so you have to stay current you can't give the same like American history lectures that you know you've given for the same 20 years um yeah you have to keep it updated and so that keeps me motivated to try to make it try to make it as engaging as possible for my students and in the process it makes me a better professor Mm, that's very refreshing to hear. <laughs> yeah that is I wish you were my professor that's great I would bore myself otherwise <laughs> yeah do you recall when you first had the spark of an idea that became the passion to do psychology and developmental psychology? Mm, I'll take that in two parts. So psychology, um, broadly, um, yeah, I really uh, sort of caught the bug in, in high school. We didn't have AP psychology. That wasn't a thing uh, back then, but I had an awesome psychology class in high school, and that just completely turned me on. I was like, what is this thing? You know, And I just I had to know more. And so when I started college, I still wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I took a developmental psychology class from this amazing woman, Mary Stiegel. I still consider her a, a mentor. It's basically the story of all of us. It's everything that happens from conception to death, you know, cradle to crypt, womb to tomb, however you want to think about it. It's right. the story of everyone's life progress. You know, what makes it good? What makes it bad? What are the challenges? How do you best cope with it? And I was like, I can get into this. Yeah, <laughs> this is important stuff. This. It's the story of all of us. And so 
I'm honored to be able to, I think I feel like it's fun to be able to teach that and get paid to do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which reminds me of our podcast. Similarly, just that it's telling all these different stories. We try to ask the same questions just to see mm-hmm. how humans relate to the same ideas. Yeah. You know, it's really fun to see themes based on, you know, what their job choice was, if they're married, what right. age they are. It's so interesting. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, I really come from a place of trying to pay it forward. I know that's a cliche that's been well worn, but honestly, um, the type of inspiration that those teachers gave me, I, I figure if I could just pay a fraction of that forward, you know, then my job there is done. If I can inspire students the way I was inspired, that's what really motivates me to pay that inspiration forward. Was it scary to start teaching? Oh my God, so scary. Yeah. Yeah. You might not realize this, you know, just based on how I act now, but I was painfully shy as a child. I'm really quite introverted by nature. And so the idea of standing in front of even 30 students, much less, classes of 200, which I've also taught, I could never have imagined that I would have been able to do that kind of thing. So yeah, when I started, I was terrified. I've been on the verge of panic attacks <laughs> in lecture, <laughs> I, I, can, I can say as a psychologist, but I just faked it until I made it, you know? And so I just kept at it and it started to feel natural and even fun and exciting. But honestly, if I had not faced that fear and leaned into that, I would, I would never be able to do what I'm doing now. Do you find that that's a common theme? With people who are successful, you know, let's say there's a value. You're, you, the value that you want to put forth is to inspire other people. And the value is so strong that, that you leaned into the fear because the fear was maybe at a, at a five where the value was at a level of 10. And you're like, well, this is what I got to do to get there. That's really and, well articulated. Yeah. As long as the, is the, va- if the value out, you know, if it outweighs the fear, then yeah, I think most people are willing to lean in. And um, yeah, I think that was the case for me. Because it was painful at first, mm-hmm. you know, but it was well worth it. Like like starting any new venture, right? Yeah, and it's good to see it is like a muscle. Like it really is. Eventually, it does get easier. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So when you start working out, it's like it sucks. I hate this. I'm hurting. It's not. <laughs> it's not fun yet. Why do people do this? You know. Um, and then it starts to feel good, and you even crave it. And I feel like that's true mentally when you take on challenging yeah. tasks as well. Yeah. What are some of the tools that you use today to get through some of the tough days? Oh boy. Yeah. So I could give you the inspirational answer or one that's real. You know? <laughs> we want the real, we want the real, real gritty. So, yeah. The, the, uh, but just a tap. Well, the inspirational is somewhat true. Um, no, honestly, when I'm having really tough days and I'm just like, why do I do this? Maybe it's the middle of the semester and the student's interest is lagging. And it's just, you know, one of those days it's hard to get through. I try to remind myself when, especially when I'm complaining about work things in my head, it's like, why am I doing this? Oh my gosh, I'm torturing myself. It's not worth it. It's really easy. And I can say this as a psychologist to, to engage in that kind of negative self-talk. You know, I don't have anything to offer. This is useless why am I doing this but I remind myself of the sacrifices that so many women you know in history have made um, so that I have the privilege of being in a place where I can complain about a career you know and I remind myself of that it's like okay okay I I could be barefoot and pregnant with my 10th child so it's okay that I'm complaining about my professional career and that motivates me you know that's that's the kind of inspirational answer which is true But also, I've learned that in really bad days, um, it's important to just say, you know what, get through it, fake it till you make it, do whatever you need to do, and then when you get home, indulge in in some of life's small pleasures. I can't, you know, emphasize that enough. Sometimes a piece of chocolate or a nice or a nice cab, you know, can can get you through the day. That's the real answer, you know. If you can indulge in life's pleasures a little bit and take those where you can find it, it makes the tough stuff easier to bear. Well, she made that easy for us. That's actually one of our questions. Do you you have a current favorite? 
favorite indulgence? Oh, yeah. Well, yes, I do like a nice glass of cab, but I will say one of the other indulgences, especially being in academia, is that, you know, we're supposed to be so empirically based and intellectual, and I'm supposed to be sitting around reading the Chronicle of Higher Ed and journal articles, and yeah, I do those things, but honestly, my indulgence is just to listen to really basic British fiction, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the more soapy, the more, you know, it is the better. I mean, the, the most lowbrow fiction, it, it makes me happy. Yeah. Know? Because it's the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Know? So it's like a guilty pleasure. I love that. Yeah, mental candy. Yes, mental candy. absolutely. I like that. I'm yes, really sir. leaning into this mental candy. <laughs> um, I haven't spent a lot of time watching TV shows. Mm -hmm, exactly. And last night I had been upset about something, some anxiety, and telling my dad about it. And he said, do you want to watch another episode of Schitt's Creek? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and I said, yes, I do. Because for that 20 minutes, it all goes away. Right, I get to laugh. Right. I get to remember that it's all kind of light. So it is definitely, I relate to yes. the idea of doing yes. something kind of different than you normally right. would and relaxing. And giving yourself permission to do something that's not so highbrow and something yeah. you would necessarily brag about to people, but it, it, it brings pleasure. It brings pleasure. It yeah. changes that's my important. mood. It is. It's important. Yeah. 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 I find that the balance between we got to work really hard, be really productive, learn how to forgive ourselves, mm. learn how to motivate ourselves. And then it's like, well, you know, you actually have to enjoy yourself as well. You can't, yeah. it can't go, yeah. go, go. We have to make that slot for ourselves, you know, daily to just indulge in something. Absolutely. Something to just take <laughs> us away. If you could describe a perfect day in three words, what would mm. those words be? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, love, work, and play. <laughs> and I want, I want to explain that because you're, um, what you said a moment ago, Ellen, made me think of this. One of my favorite um, psychologists, Eric Erickson, he's no longer with us, but he's a very famous psychologist. And he, I can't remember the whole quote, but essentially what he said is that the secret to a happy life is to work hard, play hard, and love hard. And I, I, I love that so much because I've always been um, an advocate of working hard and playing hard, but I love that he adds in relationships. You know, love hard too. If you can lean into all three of those things, that's a life worth living. That's that's what makes people fulfilled. And so, love, work, play. <laughs> or you know, I try to remember that. Yeah. Are there ways yeah. that you can reach out in that love? Like, do you mean to your family or friends? Or... I think it's whatever's meaningful for you. Yeah. Certainly, um, I've been married since the Stone Age. Right. Um, <laughs> we just celebrated our thirty-first wedding anniversary. Yay! Um, yay! So you know, certainly, certainly, my partner, you know, my family is is a source of that love. But I don't think it has to be. I don't think it has to be defined that narrowly. Um, wherever you can find that social connection, um, social support. You know, who's your tribe? Who are your people? that you can lean on in times that are uh, good and bad times. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, I do too. And since you mentioned your marriage, <laughs> <laughs> I remember this one night I was over here hanging out with you and your daughter mm -hmm. And I was getting over a boy, mm. and you said, no, I want to show you what real love is. Do you mind? No, no, no please. <laughs> and please. They, they brought out these love letters that they had written each other mm -hmm. at one point in their life. I don't really remember yeah, the story, yeah. but they were so beautiful. When were those letters written? Oh, my gosh. Um, decades ago. I mean, that was, that was early in our marriage. Although, well, that's when it started, I should say. My husband has this adorable, uh, just, just adorable habit. He travels a lot for his work. And I think the love letters that you saw might have been ones from even high school. Or, oh my or college. I mean, it's that old. But what he does now when he travels, he leaves a post-it note on the headboard of the bed. He crams a lot into a small post-it note, but it's 
just little, you know, mementos, just, you know, I'll miss you and I'll be thinking about this and I can't wait to come home. Just little sweet nothings. Um, but he writes one of those and sticks it to the headboard of the bed every time. So when I get up and he's gone, it's like I have that and I keep it stuck there the whole time <laughs> he's, he's gone. But it's just a reminder that I'm loved. Yeah. My husband and I used to do love notes and love letters. And sometimes I think, yeah, we got to get back to that yeah. because that just little moment i mean it's one thing you know you when you text each other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know a little random love note during the day it's not the same as a written note that yeah, you might find yeah. in a book or find in the bathroom or mm-hmm. on the bed but just that little that little step makes i think a re- you know a really big difference it it really, really does nice. you know it's it's a small investment i mean it doesn't take him that long to to write it you know but it has such a big impact emotionally and so yeah i need to get better at writing them back <laughs> <laughs> That's where the fail is. That would be good. <laughs> also, you've mentioned a lot of these, fake it till you make it, yeah, <laughs> and a couple of quotes, but do you have any other phrases or things that inspire you? You know, um, I really don't. I'm not a big quote person, mm-hmm. you know, um, so uh, I wouldn't say there's something that explicit that, that comes to mind other than maybe just, you know, sentiments that you pick up from other parts of the world. So if I'm having a really, if I'm not feeling it, if I'm, I'm facing three lectures that day and I'm just not feeling motivated. I know that's contagious and so it's like okay what do I need to do so my students don't pick up on the fact that I'm not motivated I'm really slacking here and um, I just remind myself in the theater world right the show must go on so the fake it till you make it comes in there too because it's like a plaster smile on my face I fake the energy and you know what about 20 minutes in I feel better yeah totally it's a real I mean it's a real psychological thing if you can go through the motions long enough if you can kind of fake it to yourself you will start to to feel that a little bit and so um yeah the show must go on no matter how bad my day was no matter what's going on in my world um yeah I treat it like theater it's like you know what the show must go on and I go out there and it's it's like going up on stage you know everyone's looking to you to inspire them and I just I play that role sometimes yeah but, um, it but is it, it contagious helps. too yeah. I love you yeah. saying that it's yeah. important and I think it's important to give ourselves permission to not be awesome every day we're human you're not going to have the most amazing work day every day so yeah Yeah. just giving yourself permission to fake it a little bit I'm a big fan of fake it till you make it I think Mm -hmm. that's changed my life in a lot of ways yeah especially now I've taken this month off and kind of reflected on the ways in which I've accomplished all that I have I've been kind of like a little achiever in my life Mm-hmm. But I think I literally have tricked myself to believe that I'm like the bravest person in the yeah, world. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I feel so much fear. I do. Right, right. I'll wake up and be so scared of an audition or of a social interaction. And I'll just say, here we go. For one hour, you got yes. this. Yes. I'll put yes. on my lipstick. I'll mm-hmm. do whatever it takes. And then I might crumble in my bed and take an exhale and watch my show. Right. Right. But that's okay. It is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any advice you would give your younger self? Oh my gosh, um, just to, to persevere despite the overwhelming anxiety. Hmm. I will tell you, this is a psychological um, thing that's backed, I mean, it's backed by data. It's a real empirically based finding, but people tend to get much more positive as, as they age, you know, starting in midlife, somewhere, you know, late in middle age, like, you know, early 60s, late mid 60s. People start to have a different filter. They look at the world through a much more positive lens. It's kind of like when you're young, your body, your body's strong. At least this was my experience. Your body's strong, but mentally and emotionally, I was not that strong. I was overwhelmed by anxiety. But what happens is that as you as you get into the second phase of life a little bit, your body starts to break down a little bit, but emotionally you feel much stronger. And I never would have believed that until, but I'm starting to experience it. So I wish I could tell my younger self, 
hang in there. It is really, really, really going to be better. You're not going to feel this crushing fear. Um, this will be the exception more than the norm. So just hang in there. What are ways in which youngsters can hang in there with their anxiety? Are there tools you would you would recommend? Um, there's so many. Everything from meditation. I'm a huge believer in aerobic exercise and good sleep. I think that fixes almost everything. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's also very hard to come by when you're starting out and you're busy. It's, it's hard to, to create a space for that, but it's, it's really important. I guess I would say that the biggest thing is to just remember that it you can you can push through it. What do they say about courage? You know, it's not a lack of fear, but it's it's persisting in the face of fear. I'm probably butchering the right. quote no, that that's, that's based right. off of. But again, the sentiment I think is is still stands. Yeah, it, it's going to feel awful. You know, your heart might flutter. You may feel you might break out in a sweat. Do it anyway, and it's going to get easier. Yeah. It's hard to tell someone how to make that happen. I, I think you just have to take baby steps and push yourself a little bit, a little bit more each time, yeah, and, and it a, comes. And as we just said, progress is not linear. No, God, know, no. So. <laughs> no, it isn't. Um, I think another thing that women really battle with, in psychology, we, we refer to it as the imposter syndrome. It's a very oh, real yeah. thing, though, especially for women. We don't ever feel like we're good enough. We feel like we are faking it even when we're not, even though we've actually got this and we're completely in charge of what we're doing, there's still that feeling like, well, who am I to be an expert on this? Did I even earn my PhD? Why did they give me that degree? You know, what were they thinking? Boy, I tricked them, you know? And it's easy to feel like you don't deserve the power that you have. And, um, you know, that's something I still kind of struggle with and in, in a way that I don't think men, men struggle as much. Mm-hmm. So re- yeah. but reminding yourself that that's a thing, yeah. that if you feel like you're an imposter, you probably really aren't. Yeah. It just feels that way. <laughs> I would agree. We, we do really struggle with that. And, you know, of course, that makes us super productive, mm-hmm. but also it holds us back, right? We don't yeah. have the time to be fostering confidence. We're always questioning. Yes. And it's very difficult. But it, it really is, I feel like, hormonal, midlife, whatever yes. whatever that is, it definitely changes. It's almost like I feel like I could take bigger risks now than I could 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I'm really feeling yeah. inspired by remembering that we're not imposters. We, yeah. we, even though yeah. we're feeling fear, that doesn't mean that right. we're not amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fear and success are not mutually exclusive things. You know, I think some of the most successful people are scared to death half of the time, but they persist anyway. And yeah, it's almost if we could come up with some new words to define how we're feeling so we wouldn't get caught up in some old uh, mental loops. Yes. That would be really helpful instead of saying like, oh, I feel like an imposter. (laughs) You would just say like, well, I feel like I could just do better. I am feeling like maybe I don't have enough under my belt, but it's going to be okay, right? As opposed Uh to I feel like a fake. Yeah, and language is really important. You know, the way that you engage in self-talk, you know, like you said, just reframing it with different vocabulary can mean the difference in feeling like you're, you're competent or not, feeling like that you could lean into something or not. Absolutely. Were there any moments in your life that surprised you and sort of changed the trajectory of your life in a way that you weren't expecting? Oh my gosh, <laughs> so so many, so many. Um, I would say that, uh, I mean, there, there were things in my personal life, there were things in my career. Career-wise, one thing that 
was really surprising is that, you know, I never thought I would leave academia. I was trained, you know, in research. I was steeped in that publisher parish mode. And, you know, like I said, ran a research lab for 10 years. I never would have expected that I might step away from that. But uh, long story short, we wound up moving from Gainesville to, um, to Jacksonville and ultimately here. I was in between academic positions. So it's like, well, what am I going to do for work? And I wound up working for a nonprofit that actually provides, uh, they, they run a homeless shelter for pregnant women and support services for underprivileged women and, and their babies and you know they do really good work in the community but it's not like anything I'd ever done I basically was a case manager like a social worker but oh my gosh the things that I learned by working with these women who had all kinds of challenges but you know talk about determination I thought oh okay oh boy you know I think I'm having a bad day look at what they're overcoming and it really changed my motivation Mm-hmm. You know, um, when, you, when you step back and you work with a population that's much less privileged than yourself, you, you realize how many things you take for granted. And it really changed my perspective. And I learned to value the things that really matter. And it's not how much I publish. It's not all these arbitrary goals. There, there's yeah. something about just life satisfaction that you can appreciate when you work with, with others that maybe aren't as, as fortunate. Uh, so that, that was an interesting turn career-wise. And then, and then ultimately it led me to teaching. And I feel like I can parlay the best of both of those worlds into that. I can use all the research background, but I can also use that insight that I gained by working with that population to inspire my students, many of whom also are coming from underprivileged backgrounds. It's a community college, so it's open to everybody. I have students who are homeless. I have students who have food insecurities. And so I... I think that step away to working with a nonprofit really helps me connect with my students. And I never would have expected that. Yeah. And that's a great reminder that if there's points in our life when we're feeling stuck or unsure or blocked, it's nice to kind of step out and gain perspective somehow. Yes. You can learn almost any type of circumstance, even if it's difficult, is I think is an opportunity for learning if you view it that way. That's what I learned there because I really went into it as, oh my gosh, I just, I'm unemployed. I don't have a job. I'm going to have to do something weird and different. I don't like this. I'm not familiar with this. I don't know if I can do this. Um, it wound up being a total blessing in disguise. That's awesome. It really was. And so that's good to keep in mind. It is. <laughs> <laughs> when things don't seem like they're going as they should. Yeah. Right. It's just really going in and it's truly being open and just saying, well, what, we'll see what happens, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. When you're working with students who have food security issues, how does that work? Well, I'm really proud of the fact that I'm at Tallahassee Community College um, here in in Florida, and I'm really proud of the fact that we offer a lot of assistance with those types of things. Um, There are student resources that are available. We have a food pantry, for instance, at the college, and I let students know about that day one. It's even in my syllabus. You know, there's a whole page on student resources. We offer mental health counseling. We offer after-hours mental health support, lots of things, support for veterans that you don't typically find at the community college level, but I'm really proud of the fact that we offer that so I advocate that to for that for anyone who, who might need it yes that's an amazing resource nice. yeah. we, we had free counseling at the University of Florida yes I, yes, I, yes. I, I really that changed my life yeah absolutely just having access to it yes because mm-hmm. that access is a real problem don't even get me started on mental yeah. health parity but but yeah access is a real problem yeah, yep absolutely do you feel that in the country the lack of access to mental health is part of the reason why we have such an opioid crisis. I think it, um, yes, I think you could make that argument. I would make maybe a broader one. I think um, 
lack of access to mental health care is, it underlies a lot of societal ills, a lot of the problems that we have, I think could be addressed by better access to that type of care. There's just so many reasons why that's a challenge, but one of the main ones is stigma still, even in 2020, either there is not that type of mental health parity where we view mental health needs as important as physical health needs. You would never tell someone, well, just, oh, you have appendicitis? Well, just suck it up and deal right. with it. You would never tell someone that in a way that we say that if someone's depressed or suffering from crushing anxiety, we'll just suck it up. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. You know? Do you think that the type of mental health issues today are different than the mental health issues we've had in the past? Or are we just more aware today of the mental health issues that are out there? I think it's the latter. If I had to answer that briefly, I think we are much more aware um, and we know more, you know, there's more research. But at the base of it all, I don't think things are that different. I think we're more aware of it. And I think some mental illnesses like anxiety have increased because of circumstances. You know, or maybe we're anxious about different things than we were a hundred years ago. But I think it's part of the human condition, unfortunately. I, I really think it is. And we're more aware of it, and so more people are diagnosed. And some people are getting more treatment than they might have in the past, and so it might seem like there's more mental illness, but um, I don't think so. And unfortunately, I think it's just part of the human condition, and it really doesn't discriminate in terms of who it affects, when in history it affects people. You know, we label it differently now, but yeah, I think it's always been with us to some extent. Which I think is nice to hear mm -hmm. because when you start experiencing anxiety for the first time or becoming aware of yes. your depression it can feel like there's something wrong with you absolutely or maybe like you are doing something to create that yes um, and I, I think it's nice to hear that it is part of the human condition it, and it, it, it really is i mean no different than physical illnesses and I, I find that so interesting you're not certainly not the only person i've heard say that it's like what did i do to create this what did i do wrong we blame ourselves when it's mental health. How did I let myself get so depressed? How is it that I'm not coping with life such that I made myself anxious in a way that we would never criticize ourselves for giving ourselves strep throat? Definitely. Or, or, or you know, or, or spraining an ankle. It's like, you know, what did I do to cause that infection to set in? Nothing. You know, it just happens sometimes. Yeah, and that's right. why <clears throat> these tools are excellent. Like we mm -hmm. talk about these tools, but sometimes the tools aren't enough. Yes. So you can't yes. feel like I meditated for four hours and I still think feel anxiety. What's up? Right. Like, it's how not, did I fail? And how my, did I fail? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I guess I'm saying that for myself, but yeah. in case there's anyone else who can relate to that, absolutely, it's not it's not your fault. Yeah. And 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 I know this. Let me let me be clear. I know this as a psychologist. The rational part of my brain absolutely knows this, and yet I still fall into that same trap. So it's it's a difficult thing to remember that it's it's not your fault. Do you think that the social media presence we have today is propagating anxiety more mm -hmm. than it's ever been? Or yeah. do you think it's giving people an outlet to find out that actually there's a lot more people out there that feel the same way and that I'm not by myself? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. I'm glad you asked that. And I, I want to start by saying I defend the positive aspects of social media. I'm not one of these Gen Xers that thinks it's all bad. You know, what are you crazy kids doing? Um, I mean, I'm on social media. I appreciate the, the positive that it, that it adds. And it depends on how you use it. It's like any other tool, right? If you do connect with people that are sharing positive conversations about mental health issues, yes, it's a way to reach out. It gives people social support. If they're maybe physically isolated, they can reach out virtually and connect with others that maybe have the same struggles. That's the upside. But I will tell you, and this is empirically based, there is a trove of research out there basically in the last 10 years 
that's looked at Instagram and Facebook in particular because it is so visual. And especially for young females, for girls, you know, middle school and high school, adolescents, actually comparing yourselves to people's posts on Instagram and Facebook can be very, or whatever else they're using, right? Yeah. But, compare, but comparing your life to images, that the sort of that perfect Instagrammable image that you see, that actually is associated with incredible increases in depression and anxiety. Yes. And the more, and it's linear, like the more hours you spend on in a week, the worse the depression and anxiety. That's some really damning data. And I think we need to yes. really think about that. And again, I'm not, I'm not anti-social media, but how are we using it and how does it affect us? We, we have to be mindful of that. Yeah. And I was, you know, I'm a nanny. I watch yeah. a lot of these kids and I'm noticing they don't have the awareness that I do to know that this is a highlight reel. Exactly. So that is the scary part is that right. they're thinking that these posts that maybe took four hours for someone right. to stand in the mirror and take 2,500 selfies until they got the perfect exactly. one is what they should look like right then. It just makes mm -hmm. the standard that their performance needs to be perfect every time when actually it's the process that's the most important right. thing. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's like the new fashion magazines. You know, we grew up with look, looking at models and glossy fashion magazines and going, oh my gosh, my makeup never looks that perfect. What's wrong with me? And that's bad enough. But when you go onto social media and you see that perfect selfie and you think the same thing, oh my God, why is mine not as perfect? But they're a real person. They're a friend of mine. If they can do it, why can't I do it? It does set a very unrealistic and unattainable standard. Our young girls in particular don't have maybe the wisdom or insight to see it as such. I mean, you right. make an excellent point. I think as a, adults, you know, we have to find the right language to use with preteen, young teens to explain to them, Her you know, is. the pros and cons of social media. Absolutely. Because developmentally, they're just not there. Yeah. Yes. So it's a constant yeah. process and a constant education mm -hmm. to the to the student child kid yeah on yeah. what's okay what's not okay and I think people just have to stay on top of it yeah absolutely we have to stay vigilant they need us okay so I'm really excited about what we're going to add to the podcast so I've been inspired by Oprah Oprah Soul Sessions podcast mm -hmm. and she does this awesome thing at the end mm -hmm. where she does these mm -hmm. rapid fire questions and let's jump in and try okay. a couple okay <laughs> paper or plastic paper Cats or dogs? Cats. <laughs> Money or free time? Free time. <laughs> nature versus nurture? Ooh, <laughs> nature. Okay. If you could only have one of these things, would you choose meat or veggies? Veggies. Coffee or wine? Wine. <laughs> <laughs> when do you have the most energy? The morning, the afternoon, or the evening? Uh, afternoon. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was that was way less <laughs> threatening than I thought it would be. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been so awesome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was so nice to meet you and chat with you, yeah. Ellen. And thank you, Caitlin, for yeah. doing this. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to The Curvy Pod. Let's continue living above the curve.